the solutions always come from the community, not from the outside. You know, we know what needs to happen, and and that's why I try to get our own people to do that work. That's Daniel Manitowabi, a First Nations mental health services pioneer. He's our guest on this episode of Minobamodswin, a podcast brought to you by the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. Welcome. I'm your guest host, Dr. Brenda Restool, filling in for Sherry Huff. I'm a psychologist and chief executive officer of First Peoples Wellness Circle. I'm a proud member of Doki's First Nation and of the Eagle Clan in Northern Ontario. Minopa Modswin is a podcast that aims to seek and share insight about addictions and mental health issues that many in our families and communities deal with every day. Our podcast is a place where we have fearless conversations with some of the leading voices in Indigenous wellness. Minopa Modswin means living the good life in the language of the Anishinaabe people. And today's guest embraces those words fully. Danny Manitowabi set up the first mental health clinic in a First Nation in Ontario. He worked with the community to address a suicide epidemic and later also supported communities in Sioux Lookout to address suicide. Danny went on to work with other local First Nation communities to set up their own mental health services and was responsible for the vision and creation of mental wellness teams in Canada. He's a proud member of the Wikwimakong First Nation on Manitoulin Island on Lake Huron. Danny, welcome. Great to have you. Chimiigwish, Brenda, for inviting me to come and be part of this podcast. Really, really happy that uh, you're here today. Um, Excited to talk to you about the work that has happened in our communities around mental wellness. You know, uh, your bio talks about how long you've been working in uh, First Nations mental health. Um, It's been decades, you know, and maybe longer than anybody else in our country, uh, seeing as you were involved in so many important initiatives. What do you see, Danny, as some of the major changes that have um, happened over the years in your career that has shifted us to culturally based services and supports? Well, when I started in mental health uh, in Wikwamakong in 1976, Wikwamakong uh, community was still very strong in the Christian religion, and uh, there was really no access to uh, the uh, cultural uh, supports that we see happening now. Uh, mo- most of our services were mainstream uh, supports to help our our community members uh, in their mental health uh, healing so so that's now i see the traditional supports uh, are there now like traditional healing and cultural language all of that stuff is now there which we didn't really have at the time when i started uh, in the mental health field in the 70s what do you think led to that shift? One of the things I think that when the suicides happened, I think uh, what was happening is the young people were not connected to, to the spiritual world. And I know after the suicides, 
a lot of the young people were searching for some cultural, I mean, spiritual uh, healing. Even some of the community members brought a different Christian Pentecostal to the young people, and they got really attached to that. The only problem was, since our community was so too Roman Catholic, they didn't, uh, the, the leadership didn't allow the, the church to be built on, uh, on our community. They had to build a, a church in, uh, outside the, the border of Wequemekong. And I think that's kind of motivated, uh, the community to, because I think the young people were called, uh, wanting some cultural healing. And, and I think that's how, you know, the, the traditional aspect of, uh, mental health started in, in Wikremakong. And uh, it started flowing and, uh, we started doing, uh, you know, a, a lot of cultural, uh, healing, cultural ceremonies and all that to, to help our, our young people. And one of the things that, I saw at least when we incorporated the, the cultural and traditional healing in providing services, uh, the healing was a lot better than, than just using mainstream uh, resources. That's really interesting. You know, we often hear how the youth have called upon us to bring culture back. Would you say that that the young people, one of their biggest requests was around being more connected, connected to culture, connected to language. Was that part of what they were asking for? I think that, and you know, when uh, on the seven stages of life for uh, Aboriginal people or First Nations people, uh, when they're you know when they were when they're young the youth uh sometimes what happens is they uh, get lost spiritually and they start searching and 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 i think that's uh that's where the, the difficulties happen you know if if they can't find the, their spiritual part then they turn to other things to uh to try and uh deal with what's happening to them. Can you tell me a little bit more about the importance of spirit in healing and living a good life? In mainstream, uh, spiritual healing is not part, at least when I started. And, uh, but I think it's, it's like the, 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 the medicine wheel. You have to have all the four quadrants to be balanced, eh? And, and oftentimes that's what's missing with the young people, uh, apart from the, the spirit, the spiritual part, but also the language part. Because, you know, when you speak the language, it, it conveys more accurately what you're trying to say and, and feel. So, uh, so as language and spiritual is really, you know, uh, one, way of dealing with uh, with uh, the uh, mental health issues that people experience today. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'm recalling, Danny, you know, uh, you were instrumental in bringing me to work in Wekwemakong in my early part of my career. And I remember sitting with people who spoke the language and they would say that to me, I wish you were a, a language speaker because I could explain better in our language what happened to me. And it always struck me because I don't think it was just about describing. I think they were also trying to um, find a way to explain how healing was different for them um, and what what was meaningful for them and that they couldn't articulate in English like they could in Anishinaabewin. How do you think language plays a part in healing today? Because we hear so much in our communities about language revitalization and its importance culture into healing. So how do you think language revitalization plays a part in healing in our communities? If somebody speaks the language, they're able to really speak about what they're feeling and and how that feeling is affecting them. A lot of the First Nations people they, they want to sp- speak the language so they'll be able to explain what is happening to them. A lot of the uh, people don't understand terminology, diagnostics and all that. They don't know how to say those things. They don't understand what it is. But if you, you translate it into the language, you'll, you'll able to better understand what as a worker, I'm be- better able to understand what is happening to them or what are what they are trying to say. That's, you know, I think a really interesting way of helping people to understand that within our language, there's better connection to our spiritual, our emotional, and our mental well-being. There's those, they're all very interconnected and the language helps with those interconnections. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how with language and that connection to culture, what culture does to support us to deal with things like intergenerational trauma? Well, I think it all goes back to the cultural stuff, like being uh, part of the culture helps us to deal with uh, the trauma that uh, people experience. In, in because you know you're trying to deal with the with the four quadrants of the medicine wheel, so it not only deals with the mental, but the spiritual, the physical, and, and, and all that, and. When you speak the language, you're able to incorporate those in the language, you know, so you have a better understanding of uh, what a person is going through and, and, and when they talk about it in, in the language. Eh? In the English language, it's really hard to try and incorporate all that, what is happening to you as a person, you know, when you're going through the, the, the trauma, eh? Can we talk a little bit about trauma in our communities? I feel that you have worked in our communities for so long and you've really seen um, trauma unfold, I guess I can say, right? Like you've, you've seen people struggle 
you've seen the Truth and Reconciliation Commission where people have maybe for the first time um, disclosed abuse at residential schools or more recently at, at day schools. Is Tell me a little bit about how you have witnessed intergenerational trauma and what we can do to heal from that. A lot of the trauma that being passed on is a result of not only uh, Indian uh, residential school, but colonialism. You know, we've been bombarded by, you know, uh, colonialism and, and, and all that. So it just kept piling up. So people get traumatized by what's happening to them, like residential school, Indian day school, um, so so they they get traumatized and in in order to deal with that trauma they uh try to resolve it by using substances like alcohol drugs and all that to try and deal with with, with the trauma and the other thing that's happening is when that person in trauma utilizes those ne- negative uh, uh, techniques to deal with that trauma, they also pass that kind of trait to the uh, younger family members. So it becomes an intergenerational trauma that needs to be addressed. You know, so that, that's why I think we have a lot of our young people exhibiting a lot of the trauma that uh, they're going through because a lot of the, the 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 generation before hasn't dealt with with their own trauma and so they weren't really supporting the young people to in the healing and uh, and i think the only way to try and deal with it is to maybe try and the, the people that are in their healing journey that that, that were traumatized I think we we need to look at how we can get the the people that are in their healing journey to help the younger generation, you know, by mentoring them or by just describing how they did their healing. So, and to really provide that kind of support for our young people. I think what you describe is what we've seen a little bit with the Indian Residential School Resolution Health Support workers, a lot of them themselves were survivors of residential schools. And they became, you know, they went on their own healing journey. They uh, took care of those unresolved issues and that trauma. And then they wanted to help others, you know, step forward and became workers. So what you're describing is, sounds to me like, um, like community healing. You know, that like people coming forward, sharing their stories, being a mentor. Do you think that those types of efforts around community healing, where people share their stories and where they come forward and talk about how they address trauma, do you think they make a difference in our communities? I think when when people, you know, talk about their healing, I think it's going to have an impact uh, on, on community members. Uh, like when, when uh, uh, for me, you know, I went through 
trauma too when I was growing up. I went, I took some negative, uh, you know, things to try and deal with it, like alcohol and all that. But, but I think, uh, what happened, uh, in the 70s with the suicides, it kind of woke me up about what's happening in our community. I wanted to help the community, the young people. And one of the reasons I had my own healing journey is because I wanted to do something to help our young people. And, and that was part of my healing is helping people in our community. And also other communities, because uh, my healing journey was ongoing by helping other people and other communities. So, uh, and I think uh, it, that 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 was really a, a good way of trying to help people. Is you know, like I think we need to really mentor the people that are helping in our communities. And, and guide them to how to create uh, healthy communities. And then I think it's our, our own people are the ones that have to do that. We need to uh, get, get access to the people that are doing well and get them to support our communities. And I think that's part of the reasons why when I was working, I was trying to mentor other people to uh, to help in 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 that, and then we often come with creative ways of uh, you know helping people, like uh, capacity capacity building, using traditional as a healing healing uh, ways, and uh, and we need to really incorporate uh, our traditional healing uh, approaches as part of the, 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 the service we deliver. You know, just listening to you, Danny, I am reminded that, you know, there's folks like, like yourself, like, you know, Dr. Claire Brandt or Bill Muscle, who really um, spoke about the importance of building capacity in our own communities to work with our people. Um, you know, I'm, I'm here doing this work because you sought me out and asked if I wanted to work in our communities. And, and I you know, started in Wiki because of um, you taking that, that chance with me. And um, it was not just me though. I, I can think of so many people that you've worked with who moved into mental health and have, you know, shaped their communities and the mental health programs or maybe even the larger health programs. Um, what kind of things do you think we can be doing now to continue to build capacity in our communities and with our people? You and I have talked about uh, our vision for a number of years now. We still need voices to talk about that vision, about you know uh, helping our, our, our community members. Eh? One of the Things that um, kept me going, I think, uh, in regards to this kind of work is uh, my spiritual helper often gives me signs to guide me what I want to do next. Uh, they give you, uh, give me signs or messages or certain people will come uh, around and uh, 
give me messages that maybe I need to, you know, do this and do that. Um, they, they somehow recognize, I guess, I might have some skills in helping people. And it started with, with my mom. She's the one that um, first told me that I, I, I should be, be a helper. When you were looking to build capacity in the communities, you've, you know, uh, your intro speaks to, you know, uh, working in Wikwemakong in the first mental health clinic and um, building, helping other First Nation communities in the Anishinaabek territory to build their mental health services. Um, you were always about recruiting from within community and building that community capacity. Um, and you would talk about how there was um, like greater trust in our own people. How do you think that work you did um, where you were shifting away from like non-Indigenous professionals to more Indigenous professionals, how do you think that's made a difference um, over the years? What have you seen? When we train or mentor our own people because the solutions always come from the community, not from the outside. You know, we know what needs to happen. And, and that's why I try to get our own people to do that work. But they need to have supervision, mentoring and all that to, to be guided. As a worker uh, that's been involved in this kind of uh, work, you're able to recognize those people that have those qualities. So you, you try and mentor them to go into this line of work. And I think one of the qualities that I saw in you when I first met you is, is that, you know, to your uh, helper in the, in the community, see? And, uh, <laughs> that's why I, took you to a, a job fair in Wiki that time to see the, a little psychologist walking around in the high school. <laughs> you know what, Danny, that made a difference because you now have a member in your community who's getting her PhD in psychology. And she's told me that she said, when I saw that you were, uh, you know, that a indigenous person could be a psychologist, I thought I could do it too. So, you know, Mentoring comes in many forms, right? Like I think you definitely took me under your wing, but sometimes it's just exposing people to possibilities of what we can do. And and also I, I think, you know, like there's more commitment, I guess, if, if we, uh, you know, it's not just a job uh, or to, to get a salary. I think uh, it's people having the, the, the vision to help their community. You, you know, the, you know, the, like when I, <laughs> when I retired in, uh, in, uh, Northeast Mental Health Center in 2003, um, I couldn't stay retired for a long time. And, uh, I got a part-time job in Chigang and, uh, <clears throat> The salary there was half of what I was getting uh, when I retired, but that didn't matter because I wanted to help people, and and uh, you know I had that uh, drive to really you know continue to to help uh, pe our own people. 
when those people have those kind of qualities, I think they have more commitment to stay and help in the community rather than just, uh, you know, a training uh, place so you can move on, those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah, I think some of those folks that you mentored and helped with recruitment, they did have that commitment. Like I said earlier, they, you know, shaped so many of the things that happened in their communities, whether they became health directors or on council and all kinds of things. I just want to ask a, a question that's been, I've been thinking about while I've been listening to you. And that has to do with um, some of the experiences we've had as of late in our communities during the pandemic. I have actually two questions, but maybe I'll ask this one first. Um, during the pandemic, our communities have really um, struggled, I think, struggled with the impacts of the pandemic and maybe triggered some of our traumas. We've been talking offline about, you know, the higher rates of substance misuse in our communities and overdoses and homelessness and all those kinds of things. Added to that, we have the discovery of unmarked graves and happening you know in in communities where former residential schools were and even more recently the pope has come to visit you know and he's um, made some indications of um, acknowledging the church's role in the residential school abuse so i wonder how do you think our communities can use this example of mentoring and helpers. How can we use all of that to attend to the challenges of the pandemic or the Pope's visit or the unmarked graves? What is it that we can do to support healing after some very difficult times that our communities have faced in the last couple of years? Well, you know, speaking about the pandemic, like a lot of our community members were in isolation. They weren't even able to access their traditional healing. You know, they couldn't go and, and uh, participate in ceremonies, those kind of things. Eh? So that was really uh, uh, hard for for our communities. And, and, and I think it kind of worsens, you know, what they were going through before, you know, their trauma and all that. So um, um, I think we we need to really look at what else can we do when because we we've been getting these kind of uh, like like the the uh, residential school, then then we, you know we get to those unmarked graves and then uh, you know uh, we we need to um, have our people lead the way in addressing uh, you know uh, the the uh, the the trauma that uh, our communities are experiencing and uh, part of that I, I think is to mentor and and also you know start using our elders more in regards to uh looking at the different uh, healing 
with ceremonies and all that uh, to address a lot of that stuff because it keeps pounding, compounding, you know, what our communities are experiencing. So uh, we need to really strengthen the healing ways uh, that we need to, uh, you know, utilize in addressing some of these uh, issues. We've been talking about the importance of culture and how it, you know, within our culture, there are different strategies that we can use to support people. Um, and we have the government asking us to prove that our culture works in healing. Can you tell me maybe an example or a story of where you saw culture helping address trauma? Well, in Wiki, they developed it through uh, Laurentian University. Uh, it's, it's a youth leadership uh, journey where they take uh, the young people, you know, uh, on a canoe trip. I think it's usually five days. They, at the same time, they're getting uh, cultural teachings. When they come back home, they're, they're meted by family when, when they come uh, there. So that's one of the ways that, you know, you're showing, uh, the, the family is showing that they really care about their, their, their young people. You know, there's, there's been a movement in regards to land-based healing. What I've uh, seen, some of them, uh, the land-based healing, you know, like maybe just, uh, you know, the young people or, you know, men or, or women. I think maybe we need to expand the uh, land-based healing for families. Because I think there, you know, that's where I guess we can also get the families to connect with each other, more understanding and uh, in, and also learning uh, how to uh, help families in their healing journey. You know, as opposed to trying and get sending one group to to land based uh, you know, healing. You know, we we need to kind of look at uh, a family uh, land-based healing program, maybe. You've been talking to me previously about intergenerational healing. Would that be an example of intergenerational healing where we're bringing families together? Yeah, I, and and I think you know, like like I think you know, when we talk about you know, maybe the person that in the family that's on their healing journey, and then maybe uh, you know. Um, have that person as a resource to the to their families and to talk about you know how they did their healing and and also to talk about what negatives they they've done to try and deal with their their trauma before so so you're kind of educating the the family about you know this is how I tried to deal with deal with it before and this is how I'm going you know how I'm dealing with it now in my traditional healing journey so then you know you're kind of educating community or or family in regards to you know uh, how to deal with uh, some of the ways of dealing with trauma in a healing way 
really building both family and community capacity when I listen to you talk about that, because it's building helpers in many different ways. Like they're not just, and I don't mean to minimize it, but helpers aren't just paid helpers. There are helpers within our community and we could build that capacity to have them sprinkled throughout our community. And I think that's really one of the ways our culture is different is that we don't expect only certain people hold that role or responsibility, that we all have the ability to be helpers and support based on our own skills and gifts. It doesn't have to be all trained. That's what I think I'm hearing you tell me. Yeah. And because uh, I, I think, you know, each and every one of us have certain skills or knowledge that uh, was passed on to us by our spirit people to, to really kind of find out, you know, who your spiritual helper is and, and, and how to utilize that spirit to, to, to help you in regards to helping our communities. Eh? I know our podcast is coming to a close. I do have maybe one final question. After your long career working with trauma survivors, what brings you hope? Hope, I, I guess, to me is, uh, like when I first started, we didn't have cultural healing. As the years go by, I've seen more cultural, cultural healing and, and uh, ceremonies, those kind of things. Uh, so I think uh, uh, we, we need to uh, continue culture, the language, the ceremonies, uh, you know, because um, those were our healing uh, ways before. You know, the, those were practiced way back when, you know, before residential school or, you know, we, were, we had our own uh, um, traditions. Our, we had our own healing traditions. We had our own tra- ceremonies. So I, I think, you know, we, we need to continue, you know, that practice. And that is an excellent example of hope, reconnection mm-hmm. to our culture, mm-hmm. revitalization of our language, and helping young people to reconnect with their identity and their communities. So Danny, Danny Manitwabi, Chimigwech, so very much for coming on to Minoba Modsman podcast and sharing your thoughts and experience on healing. Miigwech. Chimigwech, uh, Brenda, for inviting me to be part of this. And I'm glad that you were able to uh, approach me because I don't do workshops. I, I don't write up things. Uh, the, uh, I always said that if people wanted to access my knowledge it'd be good for them to come and visit me so I can talk to them because that's our way before we had an oral tradition before so you know I never refuse people that want to come and visit me Amigwech for letting me visit you today yeah yeah Uh, to me which We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Minoba Modswin with my good friend, Danny Manitowabi. If you did, I invite you to rate and review us where you listen. It helps to spread the word. 
And if you haven't already, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more information on the work of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, please visit our website at thunderbirdpf.org. And be sure to follow us on social media. You can search for us using at ThunderbirdPF on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, I'm Dr. Brenda Restoule.